Hello, this is Careers Talk and I'm Kerry Eustace. This week we ask graduate expectations and employee requirements like Jonathan Ross and the BBC, Katie Price and Peter Andre or the Miliband brothers are these two opposing forces never to be reconciled. I spoke to my brother David earlier on today and while it would have obviously been fantastic for me to have him serving in my shadow cabinet, I think he has made a thoughtful and gracious decision. Some new research by the Trendence Institute suggests that graduate ideals are still a little bit out of tune with reality. So Rob Briner, Professor of Organisational Psychology at Birkbeck, University of London, will be coming in to talk about why there is often such a disconnect between what grads want and what employers need and what we can do about it. Plus, Julia muses on making a move internally and we take a peek into the internship diaries of graduate Kira Shakroon and it's not always pretty. But to start the show, we've got Twitter, naturally, Generation Y job hoppers and the second careers of pop stars in the news roundup. Harriet Minter and Ali White are with me. Harriet, tell us what you found this week. Well, this week I am looking at Twitter, actually. Twitter with me this week. And we are talking about the rise of the Twitter consultant job. Apparently, being a Twitter consultant, or probably more accurately, a social media consultant, is a job role that's risen by 300% in the last year. And this is according to peopleperhour.com. And they think it's going to be one of the biggest growth areas in the next few years. So it's a proper future job. Mm. And it's apparently absolutely massive in the States, with 90% of companies having some sort of social media expertise within their team. And it's going to grow and grow here. At the moment, it's only mostly really big sort of FTSE 100 companies who are taking it seriously. But um, People Power think it's going to be something that particularly small to medium businesses find really useful because obviously for them, it's a really cost-effective way of marketing and selling their product. Um, So this is kind of one of the growth areas that we're talking about. And I kind of had another look at other potential future jobs that you could be looking at a few months ago, we had an article on the work site, actually, of The Guardian, about jobs that are coming up. And there was just some absolutely great ones. I mean, I think things you should be worrying about if you're going to do them now are shop assistants, soldiers and construction workers, because these apparently are all going to go in the next okay. few years and be taken over by either robots or the Internet. But there are some absolutely great things you could be doing instead. You could be a metal skin consultant. What? Yes. (laughs) These are people who will be manufacturers of self-healing composite materials for use on spacecraft, airplanes and ships. So you'll be building metal that heals itself. I don't know how that's going to work, but that is what you'll be doing. Um, You could be a locopreneur. And these are entrepreneurs who, instead of trying to start up the next multinational, decide they're going to really focus on starting a small local business and take mm. on the big companies doing it. And one of the things I think is going to be really big in is banking and mm. setting up a small local bank where you actually run your bank just for the local people. You offer better deals than things like NatWest and Lloyd's and all that lot. Mm. And my personal favourite mm. and one that I will be applying for is the space tour guide. (laughs) So (laughs) if Richard Branson is going to send his flights into space in the next next year or so, Mm. first commercial one, they're going to need somebody who can point out what star it is you're passing. So if you look to your left, you will see, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And they think that's going to be a great job for people with an interest in cosmology. Can I just say, metal healing itself, (laughs) has anybody seen Terminator? 
yes. where Skynet takes over the world. This is becoming real to me here. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh-oh. And also, you know, no soldiers because soldiers are going to be replaced with robots. Terminator. I was just... Right. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice. laughs> yeah. Who knew Arnold Schwarzenegger had such powers of foresight? Um, they did also say there are some traditional jobs that are going to stay with us. However, it's not great news. The jobs that will be staying with us will be Lawyers, undertakers, and politicians. Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my story is that Generation Y looks to seek new jobs after a year in their employment. So they're just looking to stay in a job for a year and then move on. Um, And this is from research by Sodexo Motivation Solutions. And they do sort of consultancy work for employers so they can see how to keep their employees more happy. And what's interesting about this is because I think you could ask almost any employer if they're going to spend the time and the money recruiting graduates, they're going to want them to stay on for more than a year. I think that's something one of our experts has come in previously. Um, and this got me thinking about today's topic about the sort of mismatch between market conditions and you know requirements and what grads want to do with their their careers and it also sort of extends to a a skewed sense of time about you know what it's like and what you've been you know (laughs) studying if you've been doing a master's for a year it might seem like a really long time but Mm. a year in the workplace might not so much seem like that and there was another statistic from the Guardian UK 300 which is research from the Trendence Institute and that said the graduates expect it to take between three and five months to find a job and I met with a fashion careers expert earlier this week and she said the reality is it's more going to be like six months to a year. But it also got me thinking about the optimum time to leave your first job, you know, when you when you know that it's the right time to move or that you should be looking for something. But just some signs that perhaps people should look out for if it's time to move on. Um, I found these on salestarget.co.uk. I'll put a link in the show notes. And one of them was if you've reached a dead end. So if you feel like you've gone as far as you can, you're not progressing uh, professionally, you're not getting any development maybe you're not learning any new skills that might be a good time to make a move Um, or if you need a lifestyle change so say if your commute's too long and it's depressing you or you're not in a part you know part of the country that you like that might be uh, another opportunity to rethink what you want to do next and another one is if you're having that Sunday night feeling every single night so if you really don't like your job that's the time to think about changing (laughs) not because you've reached a you know assumed time frame Right, I've got a story about future jobs, but in particular for pop stars. And apparently there is professional life after death, according to former performers. <laughs> and I think this is fascinating. First up, Dave Roundtree, drumming blur. I'm a complete child of the 90s. So I was a massive follower. He's now a lawyer. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> he spent two weeks checking out the old Bailey, shadowing a solicitor. Absolutely loved it. He's now done his legal training and it's just amazing. Um, okay, Reverend Richard Coles. Formerly a keyboard player for the 80s hit makers, the Commonards. I hope I said that right. <laughs> He's now curator of St. Paul's Church in Knightsbridge. I love this. He says his pop past has helped him because he, in this new role, he's performing all the time. The hours are long. People look at you funny. <laughs> you dress up and there's still music. <laughs> but makes being free sound like great fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all sorts of different examples. Really fascinating article on The Guardian. Um, I love this one. Terry Chimes, who was a drummer on the first Clash album, is now a chiropractor. But the inspiration from it was fabulous. He was out bowling with Black Sabbath, no less. <laughs> when his shoulder locked up and they found him a chiropractor who helps him you know get the use back and apparently that made a really big impression so he's now a chiropractor <laughs> you can probably book him <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we've got peter wishart who was a guitarist in, Sk- in scottish sorry rockers run rig and he's now the scottish nationalist party mp for perth and north perthshire 
bit of a change in direction there. And then um, Amelia Fletcher, who was a singer with indie pop band Tallulah Gosh and Heavenly, is now Chief Economist and Director of Mergers at the Office for Fair Trading. So who's thinking about a sidestep at their current company? Julian Lindley has some advice for a grad career changer who wants to make a move internally. I'm going to kick off with uh, Mimini's um, question. And that is, I work for a large charitable organisation in an administrative role, but would like to move into communications. I'm an English literature graduate and spent the best part of last year undertaking unpaid work in journalism and PR, but ran out of money and had to take a full-time job to support myself. I still write reviews for websites, but I'm always looking for ways to pursue writing. So first of all, I have to say I love getting letters like this. The main reason being that there's just a kind of drive and energy in uh, the approach to it, which is someone that wants to do something and is desperate to change their lives. And I always think that's a fantastic start because if you don't have that energy for and uh, hunger, if you like, um, for your career, it's really hard to move it on. So my advice to you, Mimini, would be, I would just take a completely direct approach. I would email someone in the department and ask if you can meet up for coffee uh, to talk about how they got their job. You're very interested in that area. What is it that you could do for them to help improve your career chances? It may be, you know, I'm sure that they're overworked like everybody seems to be these days and might actually appreciate being able to hand over, you know, a small project to you, perhaps something along those lines. And also just to... Look, look for opportunities yourself so rather than wait for them to give you something to do it might be worth saying I thought that this might be a good idea or something that you know would benefit your department what do you think am I on the right lines but um definitely just go for it the 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 problem with just waiting for a job to come up and applying for it is that lots of other people will be doing that too I would try and jump ahead of the game by befriending someone in the department and making yourself uh, known to the boss of the department and just uh, show them show them the passion that you wrote in your letter show them how eager and keen you are there's nothing better than seeing someone you know pushing thrusting to get forward it's a very exciting thing so uh, so my advice would be just to go for it so my top tips for an internal promotion are uh, make yourself known to the right people have an action plan so um, think about what it is that you'd want to do in that new job and tell someone about it And then my third piece of advice would be just to go for it. Never sit there and uh, wait for someone to ask you. That was Julian Lindley, Creative Director at Bauer. Now, chasing job security during a recession, pinning hopes on a role in the public sector when services and staff are being cut more deeply than ever before – In the overused words of one well-known sports personality, grads, you cannot be serious. The public sector came top of the most desirable destinations for graduates in the Guardian UK 300. And this was a survey which quizzed 17,000 Unilevers on the employers they'd most like to work for. And in the same survey, job security was named a top priority. Media and law are overflowing with eager, albeit unemployed, recruits, while areas such as the STEM sector, science, technology, engineering and maths, struggle to fill their vacancies due to lack of skills and talent. So why is the market so mismatched? 
hopefully Rob Breener, Professor of Organisational Psychology at Birkbeck University of London, will be able to help us out with this one. Loyal listeners might remember Rob from our Grads and the Job Market show this time last year. Hello, Rob. Hello. So do you think there is a disconnect between graduate choices and what employers need? I think there is, and I guess it always has been in a way. I mean, I think graduates are led to believe both by perhaps universities and by employers that there's going to be this wonderful kind of career thing out there for them. And I think they always have been, and we have a notion such as graduate surprise when people start jobs and find out, it isn't that great or it isn't all it's cracked up to be. And that kind of research has been going on for quite a long time. But I think there's two things that have really changed now to make it even more, I think, uh, this disconnect even perhaps stronger. I think one is obviously the recession. So people can't get the jobs they want and there's more unemployment and so on. But I think the other thing that's changed is simply the sheer number of graduates. So 20 years ago, being a graduate made you very distinct on the job market. It really doesn't now in the same sort of way. But I think in some ways the expectations of graduates haven't changed very much. So I think in those two ways, both not getting a job or not getting the job you want, plus the other issue of graduates being more common now, I think really has increased perhaps this sense of disconnect. It's interesting what you said that actually employers are also sort of cultivating this graduate surprise. Well, they do. There's kind of, I think, for employers as well, there's kind of a bit like a a courtship, I suppose, often between employers and graduates, sort of with the employer promising these wonderful things and the graduate maybe doing the same. And like any courtship, we know it can maybe go wrong. Um, There may be a honeymoon period and then it kind of (laughs) things get mundane again. And I think in a way, graduates going to work perhaps no different from that. Yeah. So what do you think are the main problems of the disconnect? Can you outline some of those? Mm. I think the the problems, I guess, I think partly arise right from universities. If universities have tried to recruit more and more students, as there's been more money around from certainly the, the last government for recruiting more students, people have tried to encourage people, say, yeah, it's a great thing to do to do a degree. I think when people get in and do a degree and finish it, they're not quite so sure. So universities themselves, I think, cause problems by implying it. I think my personal favourite example is always kind of the idea of a degree in management, as though somehow doing a degree in management will make you some great leader or, you know, a great manager or something. And I teach management degrees. And I think implicitly there is a sort of communication that somehow doing this will kind of achieve that. I think another problem is perhaps very unrealistic ideas people have about what careers are going to be like and jobs are going to be like. Now, I don't know where they get them from, because I think if most people think of their parents or their friends, that I don't think you look around and go, wow, look at all those people with these great careers. I think they probably come from the media or from films or just some general sense that, you know, you're going to have this fabulous kind of career. And I think that is changing now a bit. But certainly I think the problems are caused by individuals themselves as well as perhaps by universities, and I mentioned already, and employers as well to some extent. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about, actually, how Mm. we sort of make those choices about what we want to do when we get into the workplace. Mm. I mean, you know, how do those ideas form and how do we make the choices? Do we know much about that? We know quite a lot, and it's kind of a big question with a lot of answers, I suppose. But, I mean, there's one way of thinking about it is often we tend to go for things that we're familiar with. So we know people have done it, maybe our parents have done it, maybe people in our communities have done that sort of thing. So we pick up ideas about what seems possible, I suppose. Also, we may have a core sense of who we are, the kind of person we are, what we like, what we don't like. We may try and seek out jobs that we believe match that as well. So there's quite a lot of processes going on. And, uh, you know, I think it's quite, in a way, it's quite a curious process how people do find out what they want to do and what they want to be, given it's actually quite hard to get 
realistic information about what jobs are like. So a lot of this is kind of based on fantasy, I think, uh, on, on, on the part of, you know, anybody growing up thinking what they want to be, be when they grow up. What do you think that graduates can do then to maybe improve their knowledge of what mm. might be to come? Well, I think one thing that's happening, of course, more and more is the idea of a kind of realistic job preview where you actually try and get the opportunity to go to an organisation or perhaps shadow or work with someone who's actually doing the job or something very much like the job you want to do. And it could be with a, with a potential employer or it could be with a friend or a colleague or something else. But I think finding out what jobs are really like is quite useful and talking to people who are doing it is good. The other thing that, that, of course, has really taken off recently is kind of internships. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, there's lots of political issues around that. Mm. Are they exploiting? Are they not? But on the other hand, I think it's a pretty good way of getting to understand what a job might be like. Is there another risk as well as not perhaps being able to get a job that you want if you do get a job? and not actually being happy when you get there because of mm. the mismatched expectations. Do you think that's quite common? Yes, it is. And I mentioned the honeymoon period before, and inevitably what happens is then I think people readjust their expectations. So in terms of things like the psychological contract, this idea of having an implicit notion of what we're going to give our employer and what we'll get back, I think we probably have very high notions both of what we're going to give and what we'll get back. We think it's going to be this kind of wonderful deal and at a really high level. I think after time, we probably realise we're not going to get the stuff we want quite. And actually, maybe we don't, we're not prepared to put in that much effort or give all that stuff. We kind of imply we would in the interview. So it works on both sides. And I think there's kind of a period of readjustment, perhaps after a few months, something like that. Is it quite difficult then negotiating that psychological contract with yourself, yeah. sort of coming to terms that your expectations aren't actually what? I think it is. I think, I think it can be quite disappointing. It, be, it can be feel quite cruel. It can feel like you've been suckered in some way into something. And partly it's annoying because you know it's your fault because you maybe have set up quite high expectations for what the employer can deliver and what you can deliver. So I think it can be, yeah, it can be a bit disappointing and quite a shock and quite a surprise, I think. Have you got any sort of coping tips with uh, doing that? Well, I think there's loads of things you can do before uh, you even get to an interview stage. I think if you, if you think about your future and your, your career and what you want to do, I think it's quite important to try and have fairly realistic uh, expectations without being maybe too negative and too downbeat about it. So not think that any career you're going to go in is going to be perfect or give you everything you want. And remember, it's gonna, just going to give you, if you're lucky, some of the things you want. I think the other, other thing you can do is once you're in a job and you're kind of maybe stuck in it and you're not too happy about it is something that researchers have started to call now job crafting which essentially means that what people do in jobs is they tweak them in ways it's not a formal thing they may maybe do it quite informally to get more of the stuff they want in their job and I think you notice this a lot for example you can sometimes see people with the same job title the same pay the same job description in maybe adjacent offices you know the person on the left is on the phone all the time, there's piles of paper everywhere, they're always having meetings, the person on the right has got a completely clear desk, they never seem to talk to anyone, <laughs> but they're both doing the same job, maybe equally as well. So I think what you can do if you're in a job and it is not perhaps met your expectations, you can say, can I, I mean, we do this naturally, but can I tweak it, can I change it to make sure I'm giving more of the things I feel I'm good at and competent at and getting back the stuff I actually value. Yeah. So there's quite a few things I think people yeah, can do. Yeah, steering your own career. Exactly, there. yeah, yeah. Harry, you had an interesting idea, a question about whether it was actually quite a good thing to have mismatched expectations. Do you want to tell us a bit yeah, more about that? I was wondering whether it's 
graduates having these kind of dreams mm. of jobs that encourages them to push themselves a bit further mm. and if we didn't have high expectations yeah. of ourselves and our jobs we'd just be stuck at one level i think that's right i mean it's simply a way i guess of learning like in life in general if you you, you kind of it's better to aim high and miss i guess you know it's better to go for these things find out can you do it is it what you like maybe it isn't maybe you're disappointed but the point is as you're saying i think you you potentially learn from that i think the key thing is probably to start you know not not have too many of those are aiming high and missing experiences because i guess that can be quite depressing after a while so if you're going to do it adjust as you go along but see, you know this research that i talked about at the start the guardian uk mm. 300 it's really curious isn't it you know the public sector still being the most popular destination still it's been all over the news that there are no jobs and the people who are working there are getting cut you know why are graduates still picking those sort of mm. options I, well, as you mentioned, it still could be a perception of job tenure. So even though we know with the spending review coming out in a few weeks, whenever it is, we know that there's going to be a lot of problems, or probably for the public sector. But it still may be that people perceive the public sector as being relatively secure compared to the private sector. I think also the public sector does perhaps offer a sense of structure and orderliness and explicitness in terms of what the job involves, things like grading, things like what you need to do to get promotion, that perhaps there's a perception in the private sector, it's a bit less clear, it's a bit more opaque. What do I need to do to get on? Perhaps there is a perception in the public sector that's that's reasonably well set out for you. And who knows, perhaps people do fear with what's gone on in the economy, what's gone on in banking, that perhaps in the public sector, perhaps are naive to think it, they could actually make more of a difference to the world, perhaps in some ways, and just working for, a, you know, a kind of capitalist organisation. Just on what you were saying there about how you could go into a job and sort of change it and work with it, mm. do you think that people need to keep an eye out throughout their careers for things that might match the hopes and expectations they had? Or do you think you need to adapt yourself and work with the career you've kind of set up? Yeah, I think I'm going to give you those it's both kind of answers. <laughs> it's a bit frustrating because I think it kind of is both. I think... Uh, I think certainly people might report in certain careers after a while they feel kind of rather trapped. And if you talk to them about it, they often say, you know, I didn't I didn't do what you're saying. I didn't keep my eyes open. I didn't think about other opportunities. I stuck with this thing. And actually, I feel now I've missed stuff that looking back that was around. So, yeah, I think it is important to do both, both in terms of other careers. And I think also other activities and tasks within the job you're in. I think we all get locked in to jobs and tasks and roles and actually quite often there is a little bit more flexibility in the sense of job crafting for example than we, than we think there is so it is worth checking out it's worth asking it's worth looking what other people do because there often I say is a bit more room for maneuver than than you might have first think okay Rob just before you go um any sort of last messages for graduates or employers you know whose responsibility is it to sort of uh, sort this out Wow, who's responsible <laughs> <laughs> sort this out yeah yeah I mean I think one thing I sort of do I would I would say to graduates is that although they have a degree and they're probably thinking of doing a master's degree and who knows, eventually maybe everyone's going to have to have a PhD uh, to do anything, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I would say I think it's a sense, of, yeah, I think it's a sense of being realistic. And although uh, you, yeah, a lot of students now obviously have loans and have debts they want to pay off and so on, I think they have to be pretty flexible. I think they have to maybe have an ideal or a set of ideals, but be really prepared to do other things and not necessarily see it as second best. And bear in mind that people do change their careers sometimes many times during the course of their life. So it's not necessarily doom and gloom just because you don't get the thing you want straight away. Thanks again to Rob Breener. Now, unpaid, exploited, um, locked away in toilets. 
It's tough being an intern. And we discovered this week that our colleague, Kira Shakroon, an analyst for The Guardian's sustainable business website, faced some interesting challenges during her internship days. She's going to read us some extracts from her internship diary that she kept while she was desperate to break into the world of sustainability. Hello, Kira. Hello. Whenever you're ready. Okay. Dear Diary, officially a college graduate, officially overqualified to work at Burger King, <laughs> officially have no idea what to do next, officially scared shitless. <laughs> Love always, Kira. Dear Diary, Apparently, after they give you that piece of paper that says you are deserving of making more than minimum wage, they then expect you to work for free. Landed an internship at an international affairs think tank as a research assistant. They don't want to give me any money, but I am now officially the most accomplished person at the corner pub. <laughs> Just usurping one-eyed Joe in his extremely prominent position as the official minstrel of King's Cross Station. First day at the new job. The phones won't stop ringing, and I think I may be developing a massive phobia. I was asked to directly call an MP and request he host an event in the House of Commons. Request, my boss says, not even ask. How am I scared of this when the other intern sitting right in front of me acts like he's ordering a pizza with double pepperoni? <laughs> I am currently writing this from inside of a stall of the women's bathroom, <laughs> which is seemingly to be my new office, as I can't quite find myself able to make a phone call from anything other than my mobile whilst perched on top of a toilet. Think tank, indeed. Dear Diary, the internship is going well, as made evident by the fact that I am now confident enough to make phone calls from my desk, as opposed to having set up shop in the bathroom. I was a bit worried about my accent being an issue, but luckily haven't had any trouble with it. Though I did manage to butcher Lord Farquhar's name. Farquhar? Farquay? <laughs> Not quite sure yet. Also, I am seriously questioning the validity of higher education, as it was made evident to me this morning that I have managed to go 24 years without being fully certain of the plural for baroness. <laughs> there are things one should figure out before making calls to nobles and asking whether or not the baron I <laughs> would like to come join us for a panel debate. Had a good day today, aside from inadvertently asking a lord in the House of Commons whether he'd be interested in joining the Arab-Israeli conflict instead of to an <laughs> event promoting its reconciliation. I should have run with it, really. Yes, sir. You seem like an excellent candidate. Do feel free to choose either side. Hopefully he'll come with an open mind and an open checkbook as opposed to showing up with just a pipe bomb. Kira. Now, don't get me wrong. I love what I'm doing and I wouldn't change it for the world. It's nice being an integral part of a nationally recognized think tank, promoting peace and understanding and all that jazz. But really, some money would be great. Just saying. <laughs> Dear Diary, I suppose faux pas regarding international political hostilities aside, they must like me here, as I will soon be upgraded from my little desk to a civilized office. But don't worry about my head getting too big, as I will... <laughs> Always remember my lowly beginnings, whispering into my mobile on top of a toilet. <laughs> By some stroke of luck, I have an interview at The Guardian. The Guardian. <laughs> I know it's the beginning of the year, but part of me is thinking this is some sort of April Fool's joke. What if I stumble? Maybe if I start digging myself into a hole, I'll just throw acid in everyone's face and run away as if my life depended on it. That sort of bold and spirited thinking would have to warrant a second interview, right? <laughs> Dear Diary. So, my second day at The Guardian. No major disasters yet. 
though what I thought was a largely dissipated phobia has returned with a vengeance. Had to make a phone call, and when asked where I was calling from, I said, The Guardian? Inquisitively. Still can't believe it. We'll write later. Kira. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> so, Kira, presumably you've put those internship days behind you now, those problems. Right. What, what are you getting up to now? Tell us about your job. They still haunt me. But, um, well, I'm here at The Guardian still, surprisingly. Um, I'm an analyst for a Guardian sustainable business team. So uh, finally broken into the industry that I've always wanted to work in. And uh, yeah, I spend my days trying to say clever things about developments in the sustainability sector. And you're enjoying it? Absolutely. And you're okay with the phone? I saw you on the phone the other day. Did you? <laughs> yeah. You Did you see me in the loo? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the phone is, is okay now. It, it still comes back with, with a bit of a vengeance, but it's fine now. I, I think I've overcome that. That's great. Thanks, Kira. Thank you. Thanks again to Kira Shakroon. Job's time now, and uh, Rob's job's clearly made an impression on Harriet because she's picked out lots of psychology roles, and she's going to help Ali reveal the top ten. Kicking off the countdown at ten, it's a child counsellor for the post-adoption centre. At nine, it's a clinical psychologist for Guides and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. And at eight, we have a family assessment practitioner for the Anna Freud Centre. The University of Manchester is looking for a counsellor at seven. While Greenwich Community College needs a mental health support worker at six. At five, the Lifeline Project is in need of a family therapist. And it's a school project manager for the place to be at four. Three is a counselling coordinator for the Westminster Drug Project. While two is a lecturer in clinical psychology at the University of the West Indies. But this week's Freudian analysis at number one is a forensic psychologist for the criminal justice skills. Before we go, here's what we've got coming up on the site next week. Righto, Monday we have production roles in a theatre. Tuesday, working for a wildlife charity. And on Wednesday, what else can a lawyer do? Uh, All between 1 and 4pm. All that's left to say is thanks very much to our guest occupational psychologist Rob Brina, long-suffering intern Kira Shakroon from Guardian Sustainable Business, Harriet Minter and Ali White. Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. I'm Kerry Eustace and until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.